In these podcasts, we uncover one chapter after another from the life of the Prophet ﷺ in an attempt to learn about him, love him, and better ourselves through his example. Immersion, mentorship, companionship, and tarbiyah. These are just a few of the things we offer alongside knowledge of the prophetic biography at Sira Intensive. Two weeks dedicated to the study of the life of the Prophet ﷺ and his noble characteristics. So this winter, join me in Dallas, Texas, alongside your classmates from all over the world to learn the story of the life of the best of humanity, the mercy to mankind, the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ. Go to sirahintensive.com to register and for more information. Bismillahi walhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu So alhamdulillah I know that we've uh, had quite a bit of time off uh, from the Sira class uh, just due to travel and other things uh, so inshallah wanted to uh, get started again today here inshallah so we'll be starting with uh, the, we'll be continuing inshallah with the study of the life of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam the prophetic biography inshallah we'll be starting where we left off last time just to kind of uh, remember inshallah and recall exactly from where we left off in the previous sessions we were talking about the end of the third year of hijrah the end of the third year of the Prophet ﷺ's residence in the city of Medina. Um, and the, of course, the big major event that the third year of the life of the Prophet ﷺ, uh, or rather his residence in the city of Medina, that it was um, basically the, the big event that occurred at, at that time was the Battle of Uhud. And so we had a very lengthy, thorough discussion on the Battle of Uhud and everything that it entails. We also delved into and spoke about some of the aftermath of the Battle of Uhud and what happened immediately thereafter. So inshallah here today we'll be starting off with the fourth year of the Prophet ﷺ residence in the city of Medina. Sanatu Arba'in min al-Hijrati Nabawiyah. The fourth year of Hijrah. Now in the fourth year of Hijrah, in the very first month uh, of the fourth year of Hijrah, uh, many of the scholars of the Sirah, such as Al-Waqidi, Ibn Ishaq, and Ibn Kathir, rahimahumullah ta'ala, they say that the beginning of the fourth year of Hijrah, fil Muharram, minha kanat sariyatu Abi Salimat ibn Abdul Asad, ila tulaihatil Asadi, fantaha ila ma'in yuqalu lahu qatan. Basically, the first major event of the fourth year of Hijrah was that the Prophet of Allah sent a group of Sahaba, sent a group of companions under the leadership of uh, Abu Salama radiallahu ta'ala anhu. Now, in order to just kind of provide a little bit of a brief reminder exactly who is Abu Salama, Abu Salama radiallahu ta'ala anhu is one of the muhajirun which means that he is a native of Makkah. He is a Makkan Sahabi, a Makkan Muslim. And not only that, but him and his wife, Ummu Salama, were amongst the first 40 people to accept Islam. So they are very, um, they are from the early ranks of the believers and the Muslims. 
Abu Salama radiallahu ta'ala anhu on a personal level is the foster brother, the milk brother, the rada'i brother of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. They were both nursed by the same woman and that was the woman Thuwayba. At the same time, Abu Salama radiallahu ta'ala anhu along with his wife, they had migrated to Abyssinia previously and they of course had the very famous and heartbreaking story of the difficulty that they suffered uh, in trying to migrate from Mecca to Medina, which is very well known. Now, <clears throat> Abu Salama radiallahu ta'ala anhu, some of the scholars of the seerah like Al-Bayhaqi and others have mentioned in their books and their accounts of the seerah that Abu Salama radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he had passed away in the Battle of Badr. And that is erroneous, that is incorrect. Some also mentioned that he passed away in the Battle of Uhud. He was a Shaheed of the Battle of Uhud. That is also incorrect. And this is corrected by Ibn Kathir ta'ala, who brings all these narrations together and basically proves and establishes the fact. Along with, of course, Imam Bukhari ta'ala, and his Kitab al-Maghazi also mentions Abu Salama radiallahu anhu in this campaign of Abu Salama in the fourth year of Hijrah, which proves that Abu Salama did not pass away in Badr, nor was he killed in Uhud, but he lived through both of those battles. However, the one thing that is consistent is that Abu Salama was very seriously injured in the Battle of Uhud. He was very seriously, and the Battle of Uhud took place in the month of Shawwal, as we talked about previously, the month after Ramadan, which means that if now we're in Muharram of the following year, it has been three months since the Battle of Uhud, even four months since the Battle of Uhud. And Abu Salama radiallahu ta'ala anhu, even though he had sustained a significant injury, he was injured in his shoulder and upper arm. He had a very bad wound here on his upper arm. But he's had three months to recover and heal. And he had been healing pretty well. He had been doing very well recently. So there's a very detailed narration that is mentioned here, um, that is narrated actually by... One of the narrations rather is narrated by the son of Abu Salama himself, one of the other children of Abu Salama. He's, and the narration says that, Shahida Abu Salama Uhud, Fajuriha Jurhan ala Adudihi. He participated in the Battle of Uhud and he sustained a very serious injury in his upper arm. For a month he was in bed and he was basically being treated and he was healing, recovering. When the month of Muharram came around, when the fourth year of Hijrah came around, he was doing much, much better. The Prophet called him and summoned him and he said, I need you to go with this group of people because I am appointing you as their leader. I need you to take leadership and lead this group of people. The Prophet gave him the flag and the banner. And he said that basically go until you reach the place of Banu Asad. And then engage the people that you will find there at the place of Banu Asad. Go and engage them over there. And the Prophet ﷺ told him to fear God, be very conscious of Allah, and to treat the people well that are going with you. hundred and fifty people were given to him that he was leading um, in this group of people. 
فَانْتَهَا إِلَىٰ أَدْنَا قَطَن So they reached a place um, near there, وَهُوَ مَاءٌ لِبَنِي أَسَدٍ There was a stream where the people of Banu Asad would basically get their water. And over there, this is very interesting now, and I've talked about this numerous times to the point where it starts to seem a little redundant, but nevertheless, it's a very important reminder. Just in case maybe somebody doesn't recall or somebody hasn't necessarily maybe studied or listened to the previous sessions, that a lot of times the question comes up that we understand the battle of Uhud, right? An army shows up outside the doors of Medina. So you have to fight them, you have to defend yourself. But a lot of times in the Orientalist, um, analysis of the life of the Prophet ﷺ, an objection is repeatedly brought up that how do you go about explaining where the Prophet ﷺ sends out 150 Muslims to go to a place where there are some people, Banu Asad, and go and attack them over there? That seems very aggressive, unnecessarily aggressive. Right? How do you go about in explaining that? And what our response always is, is that history, this shows a lack of knowledge and a lack of understanding of the circumstances of that time and that place. Because if you study the history and you take a look at the circumstances, the scenario, then you're able to find your answer. The proof is in the pudding. And so the books of history relate, وَكَانَ هُنَاكَ تُلَيْحَةُ الْأَسَدِ وَأَخُوهُ سَلَمَا إِبْنَا خُوَيْلِدِ Banu Asad over there, the people that were there, they had two leaders. The leader of the tribe, his name was Tulayha al-Asadi. And along with him, the tribe was also led by his brother, whose name was Salama ibn Khuwaylid. So these two, these two individuals, Tulayha and Salama, they were the sons of Khuwaylid, they were the leaders of that tribe. وَقَدْ جَمَعَا خَلْقًا they had gathered there together, they had gathered together over there an army. An army, another book uh, of Sirah says Hulafa. Not only from their own tribe, but they had reached out to neighboring tribes and they had collected together an army. And they were camped out and they were training and preparing an army. And what was the purpose of this army? Min Bani Asad, liyaqsidu harban Nabi sallallahu alayhi wasallam that they were hatching a plan, that they were prepping themselves to attack Medina. So an army was being built and trained and prepped in order to be able to go and attack Medina. And so the Prophet ﷺ, due to receiving this intelligence and receiving this information, the Prophet ﷺ, therefore, as it, what is the only you know, intelligent and uh, the only really thing to do, and that is the Prophet ﷺ gathered together 150 individuals, placed somebody that he had a great amount of trust in, not only in terms of like uh, personally, but also spiritually had a lot of confidence in Abu Salama. Abu Salama being a very senior, veteran, seasoned Sahabi of the, of the Prophet ﷺ, placed, him, placed 150 people under the leadership of uh, Abu, Abu Salama, and sent them there at that place to basically cut them off and deal with the problem before it arrived at their own doorstep. فَجَاءَ رَجُلٌ مِّنْهُمْ إِلَى نَبِيْ فَأَخْبَرَهُ بِمَا عَلَيْهِ And in fact the narration mentions that one of the people of Banu Asad, he himself had snuck out, had defected from the army of Banu Asad. He had come to Medina and informed the Prophet ﷺ that, look, I do not want trouble, I do not want war, I do not want problems, and my people are basically putting together an army to attack Medina. I thought I would come and inform you before this became a bigger issue and problem. 
And so the Prophet ﷺ took that man, gave Abu Salama the army, the small battalion, and sent them and said, go and deal with this issue and this problem. And when Abu Salama arrived with 150 people there, it served exactly that purpose. There wasn't any fighting, there wasn't any type of a battle, because what was the intention? The intention is let's, you know, solve this issue before there's bloodshed. When Abu Salama arrived with 150 people, that entire army scattered and dispersed. Because they weren't really ready, they weren't really prepared, maybe they weren't fully bought into what exactly was going on. They all dispersed and they all fled and ran away. And they said, we don't want any part of this. And what ended up happening was as they fled and they left, they left behind a lot of animals and uh, camels and horses and supplies. And so as is the norm in these types of scenarios, Abu Salama basically rounded all of this up and brought it back to Medina as what we call Hanima, spoils of war. And this was of course distributed by the Prophet ﷺ in accordance with the Quranic dictate where a fifth of it is kept for, kept for the maintaining of the community. It is for public welfare and for public services. And then the other four-fifths uh, four of it was distributed amongst the people who had basically taken part in this particular campaign. So, however, at the conclusion, that is basically the first major event that takes place here, the Sariya of Abu Salama, um, is the first major campaign that takes place in the fourth year of Hijrah. However, at the end of this story even though it doesn't seem like it's very very eventful nothing major happened but something major was averted was avoided however there is something very sad at the conclusion of it so as i was mentioning one of the umar umar who is the son of abu salama abu salama had a son by the name of umar umar ibn abi salim salama radiyallahu ta'ala anhuma he says kana alladhi jaraha abi abu salama al-jushami so my father Abu Salama was injured in the battle of Uhud. So he spent a month in, on bed rest, healing and recovering, and he was able to get better. As far as we could tell. The Prophet sent him at the head of this campaign in the fourth year, in Muharram, the beginning of the fourth year. They were gone for about 10, 12 days. They were gone for about two weeks at the most. When they came back and nothing, no battle, no fighting, nothing had taken place. But that's why he says that he had healed as far as we could see. You know, un, you know, unknown to anyone else, unexpected by anyone, what ended up happening was, His wound opened back up. As is the nature of travel and journey, and maybe, you know, he physically might have strained himself a little bit. And so the wound started to fester and became infected and started to come back. And what ended up happening was his son says that my father, Abu Salama, so if he went in the beginning of the month of Muharram and they came back about two weeks later in the middle of the month of Muharram, then suffer Rabiul Awal, Rabiul Thani, Jamadil Ula, that basically three, four months later, 
at the end of the month of Jamadil Ula, four months later, my father ended up passing away. Abu Salama, due to that same wound, um, apparently it had not fully healed, and so four months after coming back from this journey, it only got worse, and he ended up passing away. And he then goes on to mention, ummi hatta And then my mother observed the mourning and waiting period that is mandated within the Quran for a widow, which is four months and ten days. In Surah Al-Baqarah it states this, my mother observed that particular period, and then the Prophet ﷺ married my mother at the end of the month of Shawwal. He married my mother at the end of the month of Shawwal, and I'm going to, uh, he just quotes his mother here very interestingly. He says, My mother used to say, pre-Islamically, pre-Islamically there was this superstition that the Arabs had that you should not get married in the month of Shawwal. That it is quote-unquote bad luck to get married in the month of Shawwal, which is ridiculous, it's preposterous. And so... My mother, Umm Salama, the wife of the Prophet ﷺ, the mother of the believers, such a remarkable woman, she used to say, she used to tell people that, مَا بَأْسٌ بِالنِّكَاحِ فِي شَوَّالِ وَالدُّخُولِ فِيهِ There's nothing wrong with getting married in the month of Shawwal and having a family in the month of Shawwal. فَقَدْ تَتْزَوَّجَنِي رَسُولَ اللَّهِ فِي شَوَّالِ وَأَعْرَسَ بِي فِيهِ Because the Prophet, myself and the Prophet ﷺ, we were married in the month of Shawwal, and we began to live together in the month of Shawwal as well. And then Umm Salama herself, he goes on to say at the end of this narration, my mother Umm Salama, she passed away in the month of Dhul Qa'dah in the year 59 after Hijrah. So she lived for quite some time afterwards. And inshallah, uh, I just wanted to mention it here because it's a part of that same narration from the son. However, we will talk about the marriage of the Prophet ﷺ to the mother of the believers, Ummu Salama, when we reach that particular point later in our study of the fourth year of Hijrah, when we reach the month of Shawwal, inshallah, we'll come back to it at that time. The one thing I wanted to point out since we're on the topic of Abu Salama radiallahu ta'ala anhu, there's a little bit of a discussion or a disagreement amongst the scholars of Sirah, when did Abu Salama pass away? Some scholars have mentioned, such as Alama Bayhaqi and others, have mentioned that he passed away in the month of Jumadil Akhar, Jumadil Akhira. And the reason why that is inaccurate is because one thing that we do have confirmed is that the Prophet ﷺ married Umm Salama in the month of Shawwal. And if he passed away in the month of Jumadil Akhar, then that would not leave enough time for the idda, four months and ten days. So that proves the fact that the narration of Al-Waqidi and Ibn Ishaq is more correct that Abu Salama passed away in the month of Jumad al-Ula. Just a little bit of a discussion in terms of technicality. That was the month of Muharram. That Abu Salama led a campaign. No, you know, a major crisis was averted. A major crisis was averted by preempting the attack from Banu Asad. And alhamdulillah, uh, a lot of lives were saved and Abu Salama radiallahu ta'ala anhu himself uh, he became further ill during this time unfortunately and then he passed away a few months later in the following month the month of Safar uh, another very uh, important event takes place that I'd like to address and talk about today this uh, event is known as Ghazwatul Rajia Ghazwatul Rajia which means the campaign of Ar-Rajia now, why is it called Ar-Rajir? 
Ar-Rajir is the name of a place that is near the area of Usfan. Usfan is a place that is 80 kilometers, it's 80 kilometers outside of Mecca, on the road between Medina and Mecca. So on the road that goes from Medina to Mecca, the very popular route that most people used to use at that time from Mecca to Medina, on the way there was a spot called Usfan. And what was notable about this particular spot is that at this spot there was a fork in the road. So it was kind of like a mix master or an intersection where two major pathways or uh, travel uh, thoroughfares would basically intersect with one another. That the road from Ta'if and the road from Mecca would meet, would join together at the place of Usfan, and from there you had the road that would go to Medina. And so Usfan was that notable place. About seven to eight miles from the place of Usfan, there was a small little spot called Ar-Rajir. And so there are two popular narrations about Ghazwat Ar-Rajir. This is, again, I'm going to kind of mention this here at the beginning so then we can get into the actual narrative of the story. This is kind of the technical uh, history part of the discussion, the academic part of it, if you will. So it's a little technical, but bear with me, inshallah. I'll try to explain it best I can. There are two popular narrations about this campaign, Ghazwat Ar-Rajir. One is mentioned by Imam Bukhari, Rahimullah Ta'ala in his Sahih, which means it's completely authentic. There's no doubting it. And we are similarly are not going to have any issue with that. However, the narration of Imam Bukhari, Rahimullah Ta'ala, does not mention certain elements of the story. And that's why it's very important for us to take a look at the second popular narration about Ghazwat al-Rajir. And that second popular narration is mentioned by Ibn Ishaq, Rahimullahu Ta'ala, the great historian and scholar of the seerah. And Ibn Kathir, Rahimullahu Ta'ala here, he actually brings both narrations and he analyzes them and he mentions here that what we're going to do is we're going to take some extra details and a little bit more context from the narration of Ibn Ishaq. And he says that this is not to undermine Imam Bukhari's narration at all. But at the same time, somebody should not only read Imam Bukhari's narration and feel Ibn Ishaq's narration is superfluous. That it is not necessary. And then Imam Ibn Kathir ta'ala, qualifies Ibn Ishaq's position when it comes to the science of the seerah. He says that, Inna Ibn Ishaq imamun fi sha'an. Just like Imam Bukhari is the imam of hadith and hadith authenticity, Ibn Ishaq is the imam of seerah. Ibn Ishaq is the imam of seerah. He says, وَغَيْرُ mudafir, mudafir. And he says that Ibn Ishaq should never be undermined or never be undervalued. What he has to say about the seerah and the life of the Prophet ﷺ. And he quotes Imam al-Shafi'i rahimullah ta'ala. He says, كَمَا قَالَ الشَّافِعِي رَحْمُ ta'ala مَنْ أَرَادَ الْمَغَازِيَةِ فَهُوَ عِيَالٌ عَلَى مُحَمَّدِ بْنِ Ishaq. 
He said, whoever wants to study the life of the Prophet ﷺ is forever indebted to Ibn Ishaq. If you want to study the seerah, the life of the Prophet ﷺ, you are indebted to Ibn Ishaq. It would not have been possible for you to study the seerah the way you're able to without Ibn Ishaq. And that goes for all of us. So that's where we look at the narration of Ibn Ishaq. And so what, what we're going to do, what Ibn Kathir Taala does as well, in his analysis, is that we're going to piece both of these narrations together. And that way we're not only going to have the content of the incident from Imam Bukhari Taala, but we're also going to get the context of the incident from Ibn Ishaq Rahmatullahi Alayhi. So when we take a look at the whole story, when we piece all of it together, what do we exactly find? What we find is that قَدِمَ عَلَى رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهِ بَعْدَ أُحُدْ رَهْتُمْ مِنْ عَضَلْ وَالْقَارَةِ There were a couple of tribes that were known as Adal and Qara. They came to see the Prophet after the battle of Uhud, right? In the month of Safar, in the fourth year of Hijrah. So this is about, you know, five months after the battle of Uhud that transpired. This group came to see the Prophet And when they came to see the Prophet they said, Ya Rasulullah, inna fina islaman. People in our tribe have begun to accept Islam. People amongst us are gravitating towards Islam. فَبَعَثْ مَعَنَا نَفَرًا مِنَ أَصْحَابِكَ so please send with us a few of your companions يُفَقِّهُونَنَا فِي الدِّينَ وَيُقْرِئُونَنَا الْقُرْآنَ وَيُعَلِّمُونَنَا شَرَائِعَ الْإِسْلَامِ That they can give us the understanding of the religion, they can help us read properly the book of Allah, and they can start teaching us the rules and regulations of the religion. We need teachers. Basically what, he said, what they're saying is, send us a delegation of teachers. فَبَعَثَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهِ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ مَعَهُمْ نَفَرًا سِتَّةً مِنْ أَصْحَابِهِ The Prophet ﷺ sent six people with them. Who were those six people? Ibn Ishaq mentions them by name. Marthad ibn Abi Marthad al-Ghanawi. Number two was Khalid ibn al-Bukair al-Laythi. Number three is Asim ibn Thabit ibn Abi Aqlah. Number four is Khubayb ibn Adi. Number five is Zayd ibn Dathina. And number six is Abdullah ibn Tariq. So these are the six individuals that were sent. Okay? Marthad, Khalid, Asim, Khubayb, Zayd, and Abdullah ibn Tariq. Radiallahu ta'ala anhum. These six companions were sent. To go as teachers, as, del as a delegation from the Prophet ﷺ from Medina to go and not only further spread Islam in that community, but also start to teach Islam to the people accepting Islam within that community. And so they leave with the people until they reach the place of ar rajiah Now again, what was the place of ar rajiah Ma'in li hudayl binahiyatil hijaz. There was a stream or a river that was over there. It was like a watering hole that people on this road, on this journey, like what we call a rest area by the side of the highway, people would stop over over here. So they reached this particular place where there was water, where travelers would stop. And 
وَقَدْ غَشَوْهُمْ And before they realized, before they could re- realize what was going on, these people, this delegation that had come to Medina and brought these six individuals, they had some people already waiting there at the place, at that rest area, to ambush them. And when they arrived there, before these six Sahaba could even realize what was going on, they got ambushed. And they saw and they were completely surrounded by people with swords in their hands. Completely armed, basically pointing swords at them. They had been ambushed and they had been surrounded. So they all pulled out their own swords and weapons that they said basically, this is it. We have to go now. We have to fight, defend ourselves. But those people, that delegation that had come in, now we realize that they were lying, they had deceived them, and they had brought them here. They said to them that, Inna wallahi ma nuridu qatlakum. No, 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 stop, stop. We don't want to kill you. We don't want to kill you. Rather, we're going to capture you, take you to Makkah to receive reward money for having you delivered you to the Makkans. Because there were people who had uh, basically targeted certain Sahaba and individuals um, or just in general wanted to basically acquire some of the Sahaba to seek vengeance uh, on behalf of maybe fallen relatives, family members, comrades, you know, during the battles of Badr and Uhud. So he said, we don't want to kill you. We haven't brought you out here to basically massacre you. But we're only going to take you to Makkah and hand you over to the Makkans. So this doesn't have to get messy here if you don't want it to. But we swear to God, we will not kill you. But Marthad, Khalid, and Asim, three of the six, they said, we're not going to trust you. You already lied in Medina to the face of the Prophet ﷺ, saying that you were taking us to you know, teach in your community and help spread Islam. You've proved yourself to be liars. Why should we listen to anything you have to say? So we don't trust you. And Asim, one of the, the third of the three, he spoke, you know, he basically said a few couplets. He said a few words at this time, very profound, very beautiful. He says, "Ma illati wa anajaldu nabilu, wal qausu fiha watrun unabilu, tazilu an safhati hal maabilu, al mautu hakun wal hayatu batilu, wa kullu ma hamal ilahu nazilu, bil mar'i wal mar'u ilahi ayilu, illam uqatilkum fa ummi habilu." He says that what is wrong with me while I am still strong and able, capable. And I still have arrows in my quiver, meaning I have a sword in my hand, that I would not fight you when death is a reality and this life is nothing but a lie. Whatever God has decreed will transpire. And every single person is eventually going to go back to Allah. So if I don't, if I don't end up fighting you today, then my mother raised a useless man. If I don't end up fighting you today, then my mother raised a useless man. And saying this, 
the three Sahaba, Marthad, Khalid, and Asim, basically jumped forward to fight them, and all three of them. They, all three of them, they were died. Uh, they, they were killed, they died. And so they were shaheed. The interesting thing is this now. When Asim was killed, you know, they, so uh, this is kind of telling this story a little bit forward, but let me explain the context. So Marthad, Khalid, and Asim, they fight until they're killed. The other three remain. The other three remain. And the other three, basically, I'll mention in just a minute what ends up happening with them, but they deal with the other three. After they're done dealing with the other three, some of the people who had basically brought the Sahaba here for reward money, one of them needed to, went to go find the body of Asim, where he had fallen. Because Asim specifically was named by a woman in Mecca, who said that she wanted Asim dead or alive and she was willing to pay and she had taken an oath on one of the idols because Asim had killed her brother and her father in one of the battles so she had taken an oath that I want to Asim dead or alive and when I get him I'm going to drink wine out of his skull I'm going to drink wine out of his skull. And so one of the people who was specifically hired by her and promised a lot of money by her to bring, even if he dies, even if he refuses to come, at least bring me his head. So he goes back to find the body of Asim. When he goes back to the site where the fighting had occurred to look for the body of Asim and he tries to approach it, the narration says, that that a cloud of hornets an entire cloud of hornets was hovering over his body very dense cloud of hornets was hovering over his body not on his body because it goes against the dignity of the shaheed but it was hovering right over his body almost protecting like, providing like a protective cloud over his body. But it was so many hornets and so scary that nobody would dare go near the body. So they go there as close as they can get without getting stung by the hornets and they just stood there and waited and waited and threw rocks or whatever. But the hornets would not break, would not leave. Until they finally left. But one of the individuals who really wanted that reward money, he said that, okay, I'm gonna go ahead and leave, you know, leave for a little bit, but I'll come back and check later. That eventually these insects, they have to go. And that night, the narrations mentioned that it started raining. And it started raining so hard that the whole area flooded. And when they came back in the morning the next day, and after the water receded, they looked and the body was nowhere to be found. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala miraculously protected the body of Asim from being defiled, from being violated. First through the means of those hornets and secondly by sending a flood and rain to basically 
wash away the body to wherever Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. But his body was protected. So this is one of the miraculous occurrences of Ghazwatul Raji'ah. The three that remain, now let's get back to their story. So Khubayb, Zayd, and Abdullah ibn Tariq. All three of them, they basically lay down their weapons. They have them surrounded now. They lay down their weapons. And they capture them. And they start taking them back to Mecca. A little while after they... Excuse me, I forgot to mention something about this. The story of Asim, how his body was protected by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu, when he was told about this entire incident, he used to say, فَكَانَ عُمْرُ بِالْخَطَّابِ يَقُولُ حِينَ بَلَغَهُ أَنَّ الدَّبْرَ مَنَعَتُهُ When he was told this story, he used to say, يَحْفَظُ اللَّهُ الْعَبْدَ الْمُؤْمِنِ God will always protect the believer in life and in death. Think about what that means when somebody is dead. They, they're defenseless, right? A dead body is defenseless. But Umar radiallahu ta'ala used to say, God always defends a believer. And He always protects a believer. So as I was saying that they tie up the remaining three of them, and they start making their way back to Mecca. A little while after they start heading back to Mecca, Abdullah bin Tariq, he gets one of his hands out from the ropes that he's tied up in, and he grabs the sword of one of his captives, and he starts basically trying to free himself, trying to escape. And unfortunately, one of the individuals, he grabs, picks up a big old rock, and he comes up from behind Abdullah bin Tariq radiallahu ta'ala, and he smashes him over the head with it, and he kills him. Radiallahu ta'ala anhu. So he was shaheed. So Abdullah bin Tariq is also shaheed. Four out of the six have fallen. Now only two remain. Khubay bin Zayd. Radiallahu ta'ala anhuma. They are taken back to Makkah. Now when they're taken back to Makkah, their stories are very remarkable, very touching. About their devotion and their dedication and their commitment and sincerity and iman. They're really models of faith and belief. So, as for both of their stories, Khubayb was purchased by Hujayd bin Abi Ihab. And because Abu... Uh, Hujayr ibn Abi Ihab وَكَانَ أَبُوْ إِحَابَ أَخَلْ حَارِثِ ibn Amir لِأُمِّهِ Because basically his brother was killed in the battle of Badr or Uhud, I don't recall. But his brother was killed in one of the battles and so he wanted revenge for his brother. So he purchases Khubayb. Gives reward money for Khubayb and he purchases Khubayb. Zayd radiallahu ta'ala anhu Zayd ibn Dathina Safwan ibn Umayyah purchased him on behalf to again out of vengeance and revenge for his father Safwan ibn, uh, ibn Umayyah his father Umayyah was killed in the battle of Badr so he wanted revenge for his father so he ends up purchasing Zayd radiallahu ta'ala anhu now after purchasing them they're held captive for some time and then after being held captive for a certain amount of time, they are then both executed. But there are very remarkable stories about their executions. Zayd radiallahu ta'ala anhu, 
he, it said about him that they held him captive for a certain amount of time, but it was the months that were known as basically Ashurul Hurum, and also the Haram area, the area around the Kaaba, Mecca was considered a sacred place, even by the Mushrikun. So they didn't want to kill him inside the Haram territory, so they took him out to Tan'im, outside of the Haram territories, basically where we go also to put on the Ihram. When you are already in Mecca and you want to put on Ihram to come back in and do a second Umrah for instance, then you go out to Tan'im. So they took him out to Tan'im, but they made it a huge event and they congregated a huge amount of people to witness the public execution of Zayd in revenge for his father. Abu Sufyan radiallahu ta'ala anhu was present there at this public execution. Now Abu Sufyan would become Muslim later on at the conquest of Mecca, Fatima Mecca. He's not Muslim now though. He was present at this execution. So Abu Sufyan, when they put, stand up Zayd in front of the people, Abu Sufyan screams out to him from the crowd and says to him, Allah, Ya Zayd. I ask you to say this in front of God. Say this as God, with God as your witness. Meaning speak the truth. I give you an oath of God to tell me the truth. Would you accept the trade? Would you like that Muhammad would be in your place right now? At the end of the day, this is all happening to you because of Muhammad. From the mushrik's perspective, from the non-Muslim's perspective, they don't understand, right, what iman is. So he's saying, look, all of this is happening to you because of Muhammad. What would you like? Would you like that Muhammad would be in your place right now? And we would execute him and send a you? And you would be at home with your family, safe and sound in the arms of your loved ones? Would you take that trade? And Zayd responds, he says, Wallahi, I swear to God, ما أحب أن محمدًا الآن في مكانه الذي هو فيه تصيبه شوكة تؤذيه وأني جالس في أهلي he says, you ask me if I would take the trade of me being at home with my family and the Prophet ﷺ would be here in my place being executed? I would not trade my place. I would not take the trade of me being at home with my family and the Prophet ﷺ would be wherever he is right now and would be pricked by a thorn. You want to know if I would trade the life of the Prophet for my life? I would not trade a thorn in the foot of Muhammad for my life. Do you even understand what you're talk, who you're talking to? And what you're talking about? And Abu Sufyan says at that time, مَا رَأَيْتُ مِنَ النَّاسِ أَحَدًا يُحِبُّ أَحَدًا كَحُبِّ أَصْحَابِ مُحَمَّدْ مُحَمَّدًا SubhanAllah. Sometimes even a non-Muslim says something so profound. He says that I have never seen any human being love another human being as much as the companions of Muhammad love Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. I've never seen it. And then a man by the name of Nistas, he basically stood up and then he killed Zaid radiallahu ta'ala anhu who was shaheed. Similarly, Khubayb the other individual who was captured and sold off to somebody who wanted to avenge 
the death of his uh, brother. He was kept as a prisoner for a certain amount of time. As he was kept prisoner for a certain amount of time, something very interesting was that there were Muslims in Mecca. There were some Muslims in Mecca who were not able to escape Mecca and get to Medina because of the danger. And so they were living in Mecca basically with their Islam, you know, hidden. They were secretly Muslim. And this was a concession that was provided to them by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran. So one of these, especially if they were oppressed people, one of these individuals was a slave woman in the home of in the home of Hujayr bin Abi Ihab. The same individual who had purchased and held Hubayb radiallahu ta'ala captive, one of his slave women, one of the servants in his home, was secretly a Muslim. وَقَدْ أَسْلَمَتْ And she says that, كَانَ خُبَيْبْ He was kept as a prisoner in the same home where I used to serve, where I used to work. فَلَقَدْ إِطَّلَعْتُ عَلَيْهِ يَوْمًا She says, so I used to quietly, here and there, find moments and opportunities to check on him. Kind of take a look at him. See what was going on with him. And she says, one day, at night, after everybody had turned in, I snuck out of my quarters and went to where they were holding him captive in the cell to go take a peek, to take a look, see if, how he was, if he was doing okay. وَإِنَّ فِي يَدِهِ لَقِطْفًا مِنْ عِنَبٍ مِثْلَ رَأْسِ الرَّجُلِ يَأْكُلْ مِنْهُ She says, subhanAllah, he was sitting there inside of his cell holding a bunch of grapes. And the bunch of grapes was so huge, was so big, that it was as big as the head of a human being, the head of a man. He had this many grapes. He was sitting there holding it in his hand, and he was eating grapes. Grapes were considered a delicacy, very expensive, very valuable. And at that time, in all of Mecca, in all of that area, no grapes were available. But he was sitting there with a huge bunch of grapes, eating grapes. So this is basically the situation of Hubayb. But then a very remarkable story that transpires here with Hubayb, radiallahu ta'ala anhu, is that when the time of his execution came near, when they were going to gather people together and execute him, they wanted to make a spectacle of this, so they had put out an announcement on this, this day, we're going to execute him. So Hubayb radiallahu ta'ala anhu knew, he was informed that this is the day that they're going to execute you. So he requested somebody in the home that I'm going back to meet my creator. Can somebody give me a blade? Can somebody give me a blade so that I can, you know, kind of clean myself up? Remove, you know, the hair that needs to be removed for tahara purposes and shower and bathe and be in a clean tahir condition as I go to meet my Lord, my Master Allah. So there are two narrations here. One of them mentions that somebody gave him a blade and then one of the children in the home came wandering over, you know, like toddlers, little kids, came wandering over to Hubayb 
and sat down in his lap as he was holding a blade. One of the narrations mentioned that, like almost like in Ghafla, that Khubayb radiallahu ta'ala had been such a, you know, like he hadn't caused a ruckus, he wasn't very problematic. That almost like, you know, out of just not expecting any trouble, you know, without thinking, one of the women in the home handed the blade to a child and said, go give it to him. And when he came to give the blade to Khubayb radiallahu ta'ala anhu, and in the other version of the story, when the child came near him, at that moment, the woman and some of the household members realized, oh no, he's our prisoner. We just announced we're going to execute him. And he has a blade and one of our children is near him. And they started to scream in panic. Oh no, oh no, oh no. They started to freak out. What is he going to do? And Khubayb radiallahu ta'ala anhu hears the commotion. And he looks at them. And he says, Mada sanatu? Like, he says that, what do you think I'm going to do? What do you think I'm going to do? Do you actually think that I would harm this child? That I would harm this child? Do you think I would do that? He says that, he says that if I would harm this child, then I would doom my own soul. You don't understand who we are and what we're about. You don't understand where we're coming from. Why would I ever harm this child? What has this child done to me? I would destroy myself if I would harm this child. And the child gets up and walks away. Now, they come to get Khubayb radiallahu ta'ala anhu, and they take him out similarly to the place of Tana'een, and they basically intend to hang him over there. Before they hang him, Khubayb radiallahu ta'ala anhu asked them. He says, In ra'aytuman tada'uni hatta arka araka'ataini, he says that if you will allow me, allow me to pray before you kill me. So they say, okay, fine. Do nakafarka. Go do whatever it is that you want to do. He prayed two rakahs in which he talked to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then he turned around and he faced the people and he said, that if you would not blame me and accuse me that I was lengthening my prayer because I was afraid of dying or I was trying to delay my execution I would have prayed even more because the sweetness and the, the, the connection that I just felt in my prayer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was unmatched, was remarkable and the scholars mention over here, فَكَانَ خُبَيْبَ أَوَّلْ مَنْ سَنَّ هَاتَيْنِ الرَّكَعَتَيْنِ عِنْدَ الْقَتِلِ الْمُسْلِمِينَ Khubayb was the first one to create this practice, this tradition of praying two rakahs before somebody meets or faces their death. And some of the scholars go as far as calling this a sunnah because the Prophet ﷺ was informed of what Khubayb did, that he prayed two rakahs before dying, before being executed, and the Prophet ﷺ approved of what he did. And that basically enacts it as a sunnah, that institutionalizes it as a sunnah. And then after they did that, um, and they took him up there to execute him, Khubayb says, Allahumma inna qad ballaghna risalat rasulika. Oh Allah, we have delivered the message of your messenger. 
So please deliver to our messenger what has transpired with us. And basically with that, they executed Khubayb radiallahu ta'ala anhu. They killed him radiallahu ta'ala anhu and he was shaheed. The narrations mention the Sahaba say that the Sahaba who were present with the Prophet ﷺ, when Khubayb radiallahu ta'ala was executed, the Prophet ﷺ, and when Zayd, when Zayd and Khubayb, when both of them were executed, at both instances the Prophet ﷺ said, Wa alaykum salam ya Zayd, wa alaykum salam ya Khubayb. He responded and returned their salam. Their salam was delivered to the Prophet ﷺ. And the Prophet ﷺ informed the Sahaba that Zayd and Khubayb radiallahu ta'ala anhuma were just executed. That they were just killed. So this is the incident of Ghazwatul Rajir. And um, inshallah we'll go ahead and conclude with this. The last thing that I'll mention here uh, in light of what we've talked about here today is that there's a very interesting incident. Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu appointed a sahabi in charge of some of the areas of Bilad sham his name was Sa'id bin Amir radiallahu ta'ala anhu and some of the people brought a complaint about Sa'id bin Amir radiallahu anhu saying that he's good but we feel like he might not be fit to serve the position you've put him in because he becomes unconscious sometimes he'll be sitting in a gathering and he just becomes unconscious like he'll faint we feel he might have health issues so he might not be it might not be okay for him to put so much pressure on him. So Umar radiallahu ta'ala summoned him and he asked Sa'id bin Amir, what, what's going on with you? What's the issue? What's the problem? He said, Wallahi ya Amir al-Mu'mineen ma bi min ba's. I swear, O oh, Amir al-Mu'mineen, I am not ill, I am not sick. Walakinni kuntu fi man hadara khubayb ibn Adi hina qutil. I was present in the audience when Khubayb radiallahu ta'ala was executed. Wasami'atu da'watahu. And I remembered his dua and what he said and how he was killed. And whenever I'm sitting sometimes, and I remember the death of Khubayb, and the fact that I was present there as this great man was executed, I become so overwhelmed that I faint. Because I fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that I was present there. Kind of cheering on the death of such a great man. And at this Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu, said that not only is he fit to serve, but Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu said, Man sarrahu an yandhura ila rajulin nasiji wahdihi fal yandhura ila Sa'id ibn Amir. He said, whoever wants to see a very unique and amazing individual should look at Sa'id ibn Amir radiallahu ta'ala anhu. So insha'Allah, uh, with this, we'll go ahead and uh, conclude here. It's time for Salat al-Isha. And inshallah, we'll con uh, continue with the study of the life of the Prophet ﷺ in the coming sessions. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us all the ability to practice everything that was said and heard. Subhanallah, bihamdihi, subhanakallah, bihamdihi.